We've been reading through the book of Exodus on Sunday evenings back in Nelson, and, and uh, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 19. We're sort of just jumping into this one chapter, but I think it, uh, there are things in there that we can draw out just as a, as a one-off Sunday evening here in Emmanuel. Um, I've been reading a biography of John Newton recently. You heard of John Newton? Uh, instrumental in overturning slave trade uh, laws in this country. Um, you know, the, so he's, the, he's the mentor of William Wilberforce. Uh, John Newton in his younger years, it's John Newton who writes Amazing Grace, uh, amongst other hymns. In his younger years, before all that happens, he, he meets a young woman that he's desperate to marry, this young woman named Polly. Um, he's just, he's besotted with her. But, but there just seem to be all sorts of obstacles that stand in his way of marrying her. Personally, she doesn't seem to feel the, the, the same way, which, frankly, is a pretty big obstacle, isn't it? She doesn't want to marry him. But, but there's more than that. There's her parents. They're not that keen. There's the fact that, that they're from a different social class. That marries a, means a lot more in those days. She's from a higher social class. So, so, so it, he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have any money. So I think, well, I've got to go and get a job earn some money to try and persuade her parents that I'm worthy of marrying their daughter. So he goes and gets a job, but the job he gets is working on ships, which means he's away from home traveling around the world for months at a time. So uh, in fact, there's a time when he, he even becomes enslaved himself in Africa and he's mistreated and he's stuck there for quite a few months. And all these barriers between him and, you know, he's there, in Africa, he's on these ships. He's thinking, I just want to, I want to be back home and I want to ask this girl to marry her. But all these things he has to overcome in order for him and this girl Polly to be together. Um, now, Exodus chapter 19 is a chapter that, that brings to our attention all of the barriers, the, the, the big barrier that exists between people and God. So we're going to see here that, that, that the people in this chapter can't just go and you know, they can't do what we just did, what we're doing tonight. We've sung a couple of hymns about us being in the presence of God. And that is an incredible and remarkable thing because they can't do that in Exodus 19. They can't just go and stand in God's presence like we are by God's grace tonight. I'm going to, uh, as we, we're going to go through this chapter, I want to take out three big truths that will help us to break that down and, and, and see, see that. Uh, firstly, this big truth, God wants to be with us. Okay, that's the first big truth. Secondly, there is this big barrier, a barrier that, that means that God and people can't just be together just like that, just at the click of our fingers. So there's a barrier. Thirdly, a mediator is needed. We're going to see that mediator, someone to stand in between. So those are the three big things we're going to try and pull out of this chapter. Firstly, look at the first six verses. Uh, Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. God wants to be with us. He actually wants to be with us. Let's think about this. Uh, we're introduced to this, this chapter. The people of Israel come to Mount Sinai. Uh, they're going to be there for nearly a year. Or in Bible terms, about 59 chapters. They, they camp there by the side of the mountain. And, and Moses goes up to the mountain. God gives a message for the people. He starts by saying, look, I've already freed you from slavery. 
I've rescued, the way he puts it is, I bore you on eagle's wings. It's like I, I swept you away. I carried you to safety from slavery in, in Egypt. They did nothing. God did everything. But you know, when you read the story of Exodus, since God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, they've behaved atrociously. Um, they grumble. There's no water. So they grumble and they shake their fists and they get angry. So he provides them with water. They grumble again. They say, we wish we were back with Egypt. We wish we were there with these big, big pots of meat where we ate bread to the full. We, we wish we were back there again. God sends them manna and quail to eat. But they carry on reading through Exodus and, and they grumble again. God sends them water gushing out of this rock. Again and again and again, they grumble. What type of message do they deserve at this point? What would you and I say? What do you feel like saying to someone who comes up to you and keeps on grumbling and whinging and complaining and being ungrateful for everything you do to them? What do we feel like doing when people are like that? Well, I want to say, stop moaning. Look at all these things I've done for you. But instead, what you get, you don't get that with God here. Instead, what you get is a glimpse of God's heart. And it is just so different to ours. So I want to show you, what, what you see here is what God really wants, what he longs for in his heart. So, so you go to verse five, here's what he says. Verse five, it starts, if, if, and that word is important. Now, therefore, if, we will come back to that word in just a moment. It is a crucial word. If you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be, and then he goes on to list three things, three things that they will be. Let's pick them each out in turn. It's the first thing, you shall be a special treasure to me. You know, kings and rulers back in those days had their own special private treasury where they'd keep their gold, their jewelry, their silver. Um, if you've got a, got a jewelry box at home, I'm speaking of ignorance here, but if you have a jewellery box, chances are you've got something in there that is particularly precious. You know, that necklace that your grandmother gave to your mum and then she's passed it down to you. That sort, you know, the family heirloom, that, that special piece of jewellery that you love that's particularly close to you. That's the sort of language that's being used here. God says to the people of Israel, I want you to be a special treasure to me. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, what else does he want them to be? I want you to be, this is verse six, a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, what is a priest? What does a priest do? A priest represents God to people and represents people to God. So he's saying, I'm going to invest in this relationship. A priest is someone who bridges the gap between people and God. I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to give you people who can represent me to you and you to me. And I want you to be a whole kingdom of priests. And then there's a third thing. I want you to be a holy nation. They're going to be set apart. So in the same way as with John Newton, when John Newton talks about this, this lady, he says, I want to marry you. And what he's saying when he says, I want to marry you is to the exclusion of all the other ladies. That's what you do when you get married, isn't it? You say, say well, well, 
I'm not going to marry anyone else. I pick you. God's saying, I want you to be my holy nation, my special people. In the same way that you like to think that that young lady, Polly, her, her heart must have fluttered with excitement as she realizes that John Newton wants to marry her. Israel should have that sort of response here, shouldn't they? Wow. God's saying, I want you to belong to me. I want you to be my holy nation, holy, set apart, special, different. I want you to be my holy people. But you remember I said there was an important word in that sentence. A little word that had two letters in it. If. If. Remember how the sentence started? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be those three things to me. That little word, I think, is the most important word in that whole sentence. Because it was conditional. When we say if, that means if you do this, then it'll be true. So children, those of you younger, if you, I don't know, tidy your room, then you can, you can go on TV for a bit. Well, what that means is if you don't, then you won't get to watch TV for a bit, or whatever it is. This is an if word here. And you know what happens with the people of Israel? Is they turn out like lots of middle-aged men. Do you know what I mean by that? I'll tell you why, middle-aged men. Do you know there are lots of middle-aged men out there who think to themselves, if only things had been a bit different, I could have made it as a professional footballer, you know. If, if only the coach had spotted me, if only I didn't get that injury at that key time, oh, I reckon I could have made it, you know. I had the skills, but I didn't fulfill my potential. It just didn't quite work out for me. There's lots of us out there like that, you know. And Israel, they, they don't fulfill their potential. They, they don't become everything they could be. He said, if you do these things, then all these wonderful truths will apply to you. They don't. They don't do the if things. They don't obey God's voice. They don't keep his covenant. So they never really become this, this special holy nation that, that is this special treasure. To, that all these things that could be fulfilled in such wonderful ways, their sin stops it all from happening. All that they could be never really fully fulfilled. Now that's the old covenant. That's the people of Israel. And the, the basis of that covenant can be summed up in that one word, if. But if you're a Christian, you're part of the new covenant. And you go to the New Testament. And go to the verse that I read at the start of the service. Do you remember we read from 1 Peter chapter 2? And all I want you to notice now is that there is no if here. It simply says you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So as Peter writes to Christians, ordinary believers, ordinary people like you and me, no ifs, no buts. In Jesus Christ, that is simply what you are. The, the Christian message is just so liberating. It's just so so freeing. So it's not, if you make sure you read your Bible every day, 
If you make sure you don't mess things up as a Christian, if you make sure you don't be a bad witness at work and laugh at those jokes you shouldn't have laughed at, if you do this, then these, there just isn't an if there in that verse. This is simply what you are in Jesus Christ. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of his own special people. That's what you are. But to think that, that what you are is like that, that most treasured necklace in the jewelry box, the thing, the thing that you, know, like you, you open up the jewelry box and it gleams and gleams. Oh, I love that necklace. Oh, it's so special to me. It's just like that. That's what my people are to me. That's what you are. Special. Treasure. You're a priest. You're the Bible priest. All we mean when we say that we're priests is you can go directly to God. This is a kingdom of priests here tonight because you can talk to God yourself whenever you like. And this is truly a holy people. God has made you holy in Jesus Christ. Now, I just think this is worth slowing down for just for a moment and dwelling on. I think there's something, there's something special for us here. You know, at the heart of the book of Exodus is this one big truth that God saves us. God doesn't just save us from things. We, we like to talk a lot about what God saves us from. He saved you from sin. He saved you from punishment. He saved you from hell. He saved you from death. He saved you from all those things. Do you know what we don't talk about quite so much is what he saved us for? It's not just, well, I, I clear all that stuff and now you're neutral. God saves us for something so that we can be in his presence, so, so that we can be friends with him, so that, so that we can have this, this relationship with him. God says, I want a relationship with you. I, I want your heart. I want your friendship. I want you to be a special treasure to me. And I wonder if in practice we act differently. You know, I um, had a conversation with someone and it becomes clear after a little while they're not really listening to what you're saying because they got their phone, they keep pulling their phone out of their pocket and checking the whatever it is, reading the news or whatever going on social media. And they keep, uh-huh, yeah. And, and they keep on nodding their heads and glancing back at you and glancing. And, and you know they're not really listening. Do you think sometimes God's like that with us? Well, he'll, he'll, he'll tolerate my talking to him. He'll tolerate me being in his presence, but he's really more interested in something else. You've gone into a room, you go into this room and someone's sitting there quietly there, reading a book or something, and, and, and they're sitting there all alone, and you want to talk, you start talking to them about something, but you can tell after a while they'd really rather be left alone, and they'll tolerate your presence in the room as long as you sit there quietly and you don't disrupt them because they really want to be doing something else. I wonder if we, do we think, well, okay, I'm sure God tolerates my presence. I mean, it's very good of him to, to save me, but... I want to suggest we need a different image in our minds when we think of how God sees us, his, his heart for his people as, as his special treasure. The best thing I could come up with is this. If you've got a dog, maybe you can relate to this too. With our dog, if I go out of the house and I come back 10 minutes later 
and I open the front door. She comes bounding up to me with her tail wagging, jumping up. And if she could speak, she'd be saying, hey, it's you, it's you, it's great. I've missed you. It's been such a long time. It's so wonderful to see. We're back together again, aren't we? Isn't this great? She said, it's been 10 minutes. What's the big deal? I, I just put the bins out, you know? That's all I was doing. I'm barely going to... I think someone to suggest it's that sort of passionate, enthusiastic love that God has for his people. It's not just, oh, I'll put up with them. Oh, save them. But hey, do you know what? I've got a whole lot of other people I'm saving as well. He looks at you and he said, oh, I just so love that person. Oh, I just so love to be with them. And when they come and pray, oh, I'm just so thrilled that they're talking to me again. And yeah, they might be telling me the same thing they told me again and again in the last week, but I'm so happy to hear their voice. Show God's heart for his people. It's just so full of affection and love and longing and warmth and joy. You really are his special treasure. Think of me. I think I'm sure that's fine, but you, you, you don't know what I've been doing this week, and you don't know some of the thoughts that have been run through my running through my head. You don't know the ways I failed God, but God does. He knows all of that, and He's just boundlessly enthusiastic about His people. The lesson we take from this is not, oh, well, of course, of course, well, I must be pretty special then, mustn't I? I must be pretty good after all if God feels that way about me. No, that's exactly the, the, the point. It's not as if, you know, you, you, these celebrities who, who, who sort of act as if, well, if I choose to deign my, my, my presence at this party, if I go to this special place, I'm doing them a favour because I'm this big celebrity. No, it's, it's not like that. The lesson to take isn't what a great person I am. It's what a wonderful God he is, that it's not just that he's willing to tolerate being around me, he passionately loves me coming into his presence. So God wants to be with us. He really wants to be with you. He longs to be with you every time you draw near, singing, praying, whatever it is. He's thrilled. He wants it so much. God wants to be with his people. Secondly, God and his people can't just be together. They can't be together just, just like that with the click of a fingers. We've seen what God wants. We've seen his heart, his, his desire. But what Exodus 19 does is it shows us the problem that here you have this holy God. And then you have these sinful people. And, and you can't just click fingers and say, well, we'll just put the two together again. Actually, the, what this chapter does is it drives home again and again something in the problem, something in the barrier. What God, what this chapter keeps on saying is, you can't just come. In fact, what it keeps saying is, stay away. There's four places where you see the message being driven home again and again. Stay away. Sinners can't approach the presence of God just like that. You see it in four places. Firstly, they need to wash. It says, stay away. You look at verses 10 and 11. They need to wash. God says, you need to wash your clothes. A couple of weeks ago, our, our children came home from camp. They'd been on a, uh, a half-term camp up in Bala, 
and there'd been a tug of war. And in the middle of the tug of war was some slime. One of our children was at the front of the tug of war and was dragged into the slime. And, and I unknowingly found this pair of jeans after they'd got home and started pulling it. It was inside out. I thought, I'll just stick my hand in and pull it. In. Oh, you don't want to do that. Especially when you don't know about the slime. You think, what on earth is that stuff? It needed to be washed. Now what? So I came and caused a problem. And I caused a problem with my zoom. You take that and uh, plug it back in. There you go. Back on online. What? Why do we need to wash our clothes? Why, why does God tell them here, you need to wash your clothes? Is he teaching them a lesson about personal hygiene? No. He, he's showing them what they are on the inside. They, they're, they're clothes. The same, the reason you know, your clothes get dirty, why they get dirty? But well, because we, we're dirty and we go to dirty places. And God's saying to them, you're dirty too. You're dirty on the inside. So, so the fact that they need to wash, to stay away. Secondly, verses 12 to 15, their whereabouts, I tried to come up with four words to begin with W for you, their whereabouts, they stay away. Verse 12, the people of Israel told, don't go onto the mountain, don't even touch its base. If you do, you'll, you'll die. The same is true for animals too. Um, so later on, you look forward a few more verses to verse 20, what you've got is the Lord descending onto the top of the mountain and and then you've got the, the people of God at the bottom of the mountain. And God can't come any lower than the top of the mountain. And the people can't go any higher than the very bottom of the mountain. Well, that just sums up the problem perfectly. This holy God at the top and these sinful, dirty people at the bottom. So that being an Israelite in that, you know, thinking to yourself, God is up there. And I can't ascend the mountain. I'll die. He's not coming down and I can't go up. There's this problem. Their whereabouts say stay away. Thirdly, the weather says stay away. Verse 16 to, to 20. Um, and if you've ever been caught out in a thunderstorm, I was out for a run not long ago. And suddenly the thunder and the lightning started and I was running with other people, but, but that wasn't going to be much help because I'm taller than all of them. So if the lightning comes for us, it's going to get for me. It's quite scary, actually, isn't it? Suddenly being out outside in a thunderstorm. Well, here, there are scary things happening on Mount Sinai that day. Thunderings, lightnings in verse 16, the sound of a trumpet that is very loud. Ever heard something so loud it's made you tremble? That's what's happening here. This is scary. You tremble, verse 18, the, the mountain is covered in smoke. It rises like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, the whole mountain starts to just shake. This is, this is earthquake territory where it's all shaking. And we read the trumpet gets louder and louder and louder. They're trembling with fear. This holy God is here. The, the weather, the earthquake, the thunderstorm, it's all saying, stay away. You can't come up here because God is here. And fourthly, the words of God say, stay away. Verse 21 through 25, um, just in case they haven't got the message to all the other things, now God actually explicitly, explicitly says it. 
through his words. Verse 21, go and warn the people, Moses, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord. And many of them perish. He warns the priests as well, verse 22. And again, verse 24, don't let them come here, lest the Lord break out against them. So we want to take this seriously. And I think because, I think because we, we live the other side of the cross, we, we forget something of the, the holiness. The, you know, God's saying, if you come near me, I am going to break out against you. So this is a dangerously holy God. So much of what, so much of what passes for Christianity, I would suggest it was the equivalent of, and you're going to be looking at home tonight when you get home, Look at home, you see in the corner. You, see, you, know, you see a spider sometimes in the corner of your room. Now that spider is not going to hurt you, is it? It's there, but it's not going to hurt you. There's so much of what passes for Christianity is where we see God as, as like that. Oh, well, he's sort of there, but I know he's not going to do anything. I not, don't need to be scared of that spider. It's not going to hurt you. So much... Of, so much of what passes for Christianity can present God as, as harmless, toothless, uh, anodyne, uh, uh, dull, benign. Here is a dangerously holy God. God says, you can't just come near me just like that. You can go nowhere near me. Thirdly, third big truth from this chapter is that a mediator is needed. We've said God wants to be with his people, but then we've said it can't just happen just like that. What this chapter does is it then shows us the only way this can be possible, which is through a mediator. So, um, Moses, throughout this chapter, keeps on going up and down uh, the mountain, um, a little bit almost like, a little bit like the grand old Duke of York, because when he's up, he's up. So he goes up the mountain to talk to God. And then when he's down, he's down. He goes down the mountain to talk to the people and relay the message from God. Um, what you don't find with Moses is he's never halfway up. He's either up or he's down, but he keeps on doing, going in between God and these sinful people. Moses is allowed up, not because he's sinless, not because he's perfect, but because he's, he's the mediator of the covenant. He's the stand in between. In fact, I, I, I counted it up seven times in this chapter that it uses words like ascend, go up, come up. Seven times the opposite, uh, uh, descend, uh, goes down. Mo Moses is going up and down the mountain like a yo-yo in this chapter. And there is a vital picture for us. Moses has to ascend because the people can't go up to where God is. And then he has to descend again because after he's spoken to God, God cannot just come and live among sinful people. And that's Moses' job. He is the mediator. He's the mediator of the old covenant. He's going to give them all the commands, the things where he says, if you do this, if you do that, then these things can be yours. But they don't. They can't. They're sinners. It's a covenant that leads to death for them. So what does God do? He does something different. A new covenant. And we've said it already, but we're going to say it again. If you're a Christian, the covenant that you're in is a covenant with no ifs, with no buts. In other words, that, that's all we mean. When we say it's a covenant of grace, that's what a covenant of grace is. It's one where God says, I'm doing it all for you. 
It doesn't depend on your good behavior. Moses was a mediator of a covenant of works. God says in Jesus Christ, it's a covenant of grace. There's a new mediator for that. You know, the Lord Jesus, what we've got in Moses here is a picture of what the Lord Jesus comes to do. Remember how Moses is ascending and descending? Well, that's what Jesus does. He, he descends from heaven and he lives on earth. And there is something mysterious, something I don't think the Bible ever really explains that we can grapple with, but we, I don't think it fully explains this. Something about Jesus in his humanity that means that he can walk amongst us and the people all around him aren't just burnt like they would have been if they tried to climb that mountain. God as a man in Jesus Christ is able to come and live in the presence of sinners. He can descend like Moses does and he can walk amongst sinners. And then he dies and he's raised and he's ascended. He ascends to heaven again. And there he does what no mere man can do. He stands in the presence of God in heaven. And and he's able to do that because he's God. So this is a covenant that needs a mediator who is both God and man. God who is with us. God who is representing us perfectly in heaven. Now, all this means that in terms of, you know, where, where, where do you put yourself in this? If you're a Christian, where do we see ourselves? All it really means is that you are not in the same position as Israelites were at the base of Mount Sinai. And that's what the New Testament tells us. That's, that's where we're coming to a close with all of this. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18 onwards. It's a slightly longer quote, but I want us to see this contrast. Hebrews 12, verse 18, uh, writing to, to believers, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He's saying, you've not come to that mountain, Mount Sinai. Hebrews 12 carries on. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You can see the difference. There are those people at Mount Sinai quaking with terror, knowing they can't go up and stand in the presence of God. He says, no, you you come to Mount Zion. And that means you do come into the very presence of God through the mediator of this new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we're doing here tonight? When we sung those hymns at the start of the service, be still for the presence of the Lord is here. Why were we not blown away? Why were we not burned? Why did the Lord not break out amongst us like he would have done in Exodus 19? It's only through the Lord Jesus. Him as our 
mediator, our faith in him. And not only that, he brings us into the presence of God in such a way that now God looks at you. Oh, my treasured possession. Oh, I'm so glad. It's, it's you. Oh, I'm just filled with joy to see you. And he says that in spite of everything you've done, everything you said, every wicked thought, every shameful act, every failure. He says, oh, oh you're, just, you're my treasured possession. And I love you to bits. You're mine. And you're mine forever. That's what being a Christian is all about. Not just saved from things, we're saved to be in the presence of God, to be with Him, that we are His treasured possession. We're going to sing. Let's sing our next hymn.